0: listeners to Connect the Dots. I'm Allison Rose Levy, and we're here with you every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm a longstanding journalist of health, food, and the environment, public policy, and media insight. Um, each week on the show, we talk with different experts, advocates, authors, scientists, ec- economists, researchers, filmmakers, uh, psychologists, all about different facets of our interconnected world and how they affect our individual well-being, the well-being of our communities, the well-being of our society, and the uh, ecological state of our habitat, planet Earth. Um, the show has been on, uh, this podcast has been going, Connect the Dots, for 11 years, it's kind of amazing, and each week we have these different in-depth conversations with people who can illuminate an important facet of, you know, what we're dealing with, and today I'm really delighted um, to be welcoming um, an epidemiologist. Um, uh, His name is Rob Lipton. He has a Ph.D., In epidemiology, um, he also has a master's of public health in epidemiology. So, And we can talk more about what that actually means with Rob, but, you know, it's basically the overview, um, you know, from a kind of uh, meta level of, you know, of what's going on in the area of public health. You know, we we talk a lot about health, focus on health Um, as individuals, you know, for ourselves and our family members and, and, you know, and our friends and other people. But, in fact, with something like the COVID-19 virus and epidemic and pandemic, we really are looking and called to look both at, you know, Staying well and protected ourselves, and also looking at the, some of the bigger picture issues. Um, so, I'm really um, delighted to have Rob Lipton, who both has the academic background as well as an incredibly extensive um, history as a researcher and writer of papers who's examined many different um, facets of public health in his many years of work. Um, to join us today. So welcome to Connect the Dots, Rob Lipton.
1: Oh, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you here. So, you know, there's kind of, this has been, I mean, basically we're now, what is it, three, three and a half months here in the U.S., into the pandemic, and of course it began earlier in asia um mm-hmm. and so you know there has been you know there are several issues: one is the virus itself, the other the conditions that either promote or interrupt its trajectory, and these, and and also there are comparatives to how it's been treated in other countries, how it's being treated here, what the best way to treat it and address it might be, with you know some doubts about that um, and fear, right. um, and we've also had a uh, a society like many other countries around the world in lockdown, so right. um, you know so people are basically being to their homes um in concern about this virus and i think the trust in both public health authorities and government um you know is not at an all-time high and uh yeah. and yet it's when we need it to be at an all-time high um because right. this is not something that's within individual control only um right. so like you know, let's kind of jump into some of that. Um, You know, in terms of um, maybe we could begin just by your defining what the role and function of epidemiology, I'm lucky every time I pronounce it correctly, um, is, you know, from from your perspective, and then we can go on from there.
1: Sure. Uh, You know, this is the High point in the lives of most epidemiologists, paradoxically, or, you know, it makes sense. Oftentimes, before, people would say epidemiology, so you study skin, right, and epidermis kind of thing. No. In fact, no. Uh, We study the occurrence and spread of disease and illness. That's the general. There's a lot of ways to describe epidemiology. We mostly, if, if we really think about it, it's talking about how data is related. How, uh, you know, is re- health data, uh, it's, whatever that means, it's a general idea of what health is, is related to um, all sorts of predictors, things that are causal for outcomes and things like that. So we look at data a lot and we think through it in different kinds of subject areas, whether it's chronic diseases or infectious diseases. And this also includes social problems. And so a lot of my work's in spatial epidemiology, and I study, I essentially put people in places regarding health, and that kind of makes sense. When I say spatial or geographical, that's not highfalutin, that's literally how we live. We live in places, humans associate in places, we don't, you know, and that's what we're trying to model is how place and individuals and social context generally affect outcomes, health outcomes. And uh, and it could, as I was saying, it could be infectious disease or chronic diseases. We can look at violence. We can look at things like uh, alcohol-related problems, tobacco-related problems, uh, all sorts of things like that. And so that's that's the general background of what epidemiologists do and what I do in, in particular with spatial-type epidemiology and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. So you map this out. Um... Yeah and you know is i mean par- part of i guess the question is how you define the data points how uh
1: yeah.
0: close to the actual <clears throat> data uh, you can you can get in your calculations um right. you know and how that is defined because you know one could look at a chart and It could be either accurate or misleading, depending on how things are defined. Just to give an example, you know, one of the things um, that happens that that I've noticed is that um, the number of cases, for example, in a given location within a given uh, period of time of COVID-19, is defined by how many people were tested. Um, so if mm-hmm. they were tested, then we know that there's a case, and then we can track an outcome. You know, did they recover? Right. Um, did they right. succumb? You know, like what happened? But if, for example, lower availability of tests or inaccuracy in tests, um, you know, could kind of um, kind of tilt the results because. Right. I mean, more people might have it than were tested, and so we're only able to count the ones who were tested. And so, you know, there's just, I mean, how do you? What are the benchmarks for ensuring that yeah. you know you're getting an accurate representation of the picture?
1: Well, that that, be, that you asked, <laughs> right up front, you asked probably the most difficult and important question. Uh, regarding how we think about research, how we think about science, how we think about data. Uh, the first thing to, to understand is nothing is absolute, except for me saying nothing. <laughs> the, the point, it, it, we have, it's always the moving target. We, when we deal with data, there is variability in the data, so we can never give the answer, the exact number There's going to be variation when you have data, and that throws people because we want exact information, and I get it. The way to talk about these things often is increased versus decreased risk or no change in Mm -hmm. risk, and that's always a question also of a certain level of variability. And you want to get – there's a couple of ways to think about this. You want to become – you want things to be as – tightly uh specified in regard to you say this is what we think is going on this is the risk and you heard this in surveys with a three percent you know error kind of thing right and that's you hear that with surveys constantly you know polls and all that and that's the reason they're saying that is because they're saying we don't you know with there's a on either side of the number they get, there's three there's you know, three percentage, there's there's a flexibility of about six percent in regard to that answer, quote mm-hmm. unquote. And that answer. Mm-hmm. So this is where it gets this is where it becomes an issue because sometimes there's too much variability in the data and we can't give you an answer. That's anything, but it um, it will include chance, it will you know just by chance something happening. It will include really large effects, but you can't even tell. You can't tell if it's by chance or there's this really dangerous effect. So this is all by way of saying we look at a compelling story. Does this data help us intervene and or predict what's going to happen? And that's kind Mm -hmm. of what science is trying to do in a certain sense. So. Uh what, what this means is when you look at data, you look at a specific data point, you look at a specific research article, and it has a finding, right? Uh, it might show, for example, that, uh, you know, there's an increased risk in—like uh, the data might show that in one place that there's an increased risk of having serious outcome for coronavirus if you're uh, if you if you have high blood pressure let's say right and so uh, that data people go okay that's important but it turns out that uh, that's just once it could be that it's one place where there's where the, they've done that research and it turns mm-hmm. out that there's some kind of other thing that actually is explaining this issue with these people having high blood pressure. There's something else involved. It could be, uh, you know, it's an, it's, it's the, the real issue there. And this is where it becomes more social. Is yes, they have high blood pressure, but it's but they but part part of that reason is they have super high stress levels because mm-hmm. they're um, you know might they, they might be a person of color or live in the, they might have major issues of racism against them all their lives. So they have this increased blood pressure but they have all the other things that go along with it so that when you find that there increased blood pressure that's a, that's a very small part of the story it might it mm-hmm. might be that these people live in really bad health situations and in poverty and such differentially and this is what we call social inequity issues you know and you're getting that in this you know if and so this is i wanted to get to this as quickly as possible to try and tell this coherent coherent story If you see multiple Mm -hmm. data points, data sets, pieces of data from all over the country that's showing high blood pressure, then it becomes something on its own terms, and you're starting to tell that story. If it's congestive heart failure, which also seems to be related, kidney disease seems to be related on on their own terms, right? Guess what, Mm -hmm. though? When you start pulling apart the data, it looks like... There is this bifurcation, especially. I'm, I, you know, I'm based in California. I'm based in Northern California. There is a bifurcation between. Uh, what do I mean by that? There's a split where you're getting older white people that have serious illness and uh, dying at higher rates. We're talking about 65 plus years old, especially 80 plus years old. But when you look at younger people, younger-ish, relatively, you know, 18 to 35, 35 to 49. It turns out in in California there are a lot of Latinx people in the younger age groups. Guess what? They're working in the fields. They're working in frontline jobs. They're often undocumented, and they are exposed in in, in ways that are you know much different than the rest of the population. So you see this massive differential in Cal in, in California specifically, and I can. Tear it down for other states, but uh between these high you know these these older people that have these comorbidities, so to speak, right, okay. and when we talk about comorbidities, it's as we're saying high blood pressure, congestive heart failure, blah blah blah, all those things but and you expect that, and guess what most of those are in nursing homes. <laughs> So that's another thing. There's two things going on. These people have these comorbidities and they're in nursing homes. And mm-hmm. you know, it's it's so that's it's another way to think about place. These these a lot of these things are occurring in nursing homes and guess who also works in, you know, those people live in nursing homes and they are oft, you know, they most of the people that are working there are low-paid people of color. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's another vector, so to speak, of possible infectivity where we have this, I don't mean vector in the, uh, by the way, the infectious disease sense, that's a different kind of vector, but I'm just talking about a different, this is a pathway towards infection mm-hmm. back and forth. So you can imagine these people that are under you know, that, that that are underserved, poor people living in more crowded conditions often because super high rents in California, as you know. And, you know, cost of living is insane, you know. And so you have that, and they're working in nursing homes, as well as a lot of people of color, often Latinx, working in these frontline jobs in agriculture, in back kitchen food service, uh, mm-hmm. all sorts of labor situations and so that that starts when you start to pull apart the data in California which is you know the largest state it has about 40 million people that it, those are the people we're seeing i've given you a broad sense of it mm-hmm. so this is a uh, this is me trying to tell Science is also about storytelling. We, we, we're not going to give you the causal relationship because it's impossible to say this causes that absolutely, as I was saying earlier. But we're trying to tell a compelling story uh, mm-hmm. with data. And if you can believe it or not—that's the problem. And you know, as scientists, we could say this this is a better story versus a not good story. And mm-hmm. so, I, I, I we look at the data in California, and we go, "Huh." That's interesting. What kind of story is being told? If you're having these younger populations that are disproportionately of of, you know serious illness and death from COVID-19, if they're mostly you know disproportionately composed of Latinx, you know Hispanic Latino populations in California, that's interesting. And it seems that's not ambiguous. There's some variation in the data, as there always is, but this is pretty compelling when you have these giant proportions of people who are um, in California who are, uh, you know, of color and in in younger populations. So when you look at that, for example, I'm looking right here, uh, deaths for Latino populations in the 35 to 49-year-old age group disproportionately is composed of um, you know, Latino populations compared to white, Asian, black, or other. That's huge. We're talking about of the percentage in this, let's see here, 16, yeah. Um, about 75% or three quarters of those people dying in that age group 35 to 49 are Latino in California. You go, whoa, and then when, and it, just, it didn't tell you that story. We flip the script and we go towards you know people 65 to 79, um, you still get quite a few Latino deaths percentage, but all of a sudden the white population is close. And then if you go to 80 plus years old, the white population is the dominant one that is dying. It's about 42% versus 26% Latino. Latino and state population, Latinx population, are taking the brunt overall of excess deaths in California for uh, COVID-19. And this is a story that I believe, I see it in the data um, in regard to California, and I go, "That's, that's real information at that point. And so that's, that's I, I
0: you know this this is really interesting and it kind of brings up a question which is you mm-hmm. know there's some uh some contention among <clears throat> some people uh from the integrative medicine com- community parsing the data and saying these deaths don't count because the people had comorbidities, they had other pre-existing right. conditions, right. they had weakened or compromised right. immunity and therefore right. You know, this is just happens to be the minor little thing that took them out, um, and that doesn't right. reflect that it's serious for other people. Right. Like, right. what's your view on that kind of analysis?
1: <laughs> that's just you know, that's a kind of eugenics or uh, euthanasia thing. About uh, a couple things, uh, we look at excess deaths. And that's the best way mm-hmm. to look at this right now in regard to on a daily or weekly or monthly basis expected deaths you'd see in all populations including older versus observed right and that's so mm-hmm. you, that's a good way to think about this and the the ex- excess deaths on a daily basis are, are increased across all sorts of populations but particularly in older populations that have comorbidities okay and and by the way older people we we, as we get older, we're, we're just a bucket in which our infirmities are poured, and we're all, you know, as we get older, we're more fragile, so to speak. Just and, and mm-hmm. so that's just the age is just a marker of possible illness. So um, there are people that are they might have these comorbidities, but they're they're living pretty good lives. They're older at some level, um, mm-hmm. but you know maybe. Uh, but the, all of a sudden, this just takes you out. It kills you. And that that's the kind of euthanasia argument if people say, you know, something would have killed them anyways, and, you know, this got to yeah. Well, and, and it's like, well, I mean, you know, that—that, that, and you hear that, you know, you hear that. There's like that Texas uh, politician who like a month ago said, you know, I, I think older people, you know, if, you know, we should keep things open because it's good for the economy. And if more older people die, I'm, I'll sign up for that. You know, that kind of thing. And and say, wait a minute. You know, it, and by the way, to be clear, I just there there is excess deaths in younger populations that are exposed to this that might have comorbidities too, especially Latinx in our. Um, in, in, in California, and then you ask yourself, well, comorbidities matter. It's not, it doesn't just kill for the most part. It's another thing we can talk about, but for the most part, it kills people with, these, with some kind of illness but, or some kind of pressure on their system. So if you're a Latinx person that's working really hard agricultural jobs, or you're working in one of these nursing homes, or it's a hard job, and maybe you love it, maybe you don't, but maybe you also are under high stress and you have your own ailments. You might be at higher risk for ailments, just by virtue of living, you know, having, living a, a relatively impoverished life, lack of health care, having to work really hard, maybe you have illnesses and sicknesses that go and treat it. And that happens okay. a lot in poorer populations here. Uh, then um, you go, you're in a situation where uh, you're going to have increased risk for corona death or serious outcomes. And that argument that, you know, that you were posing the idea that, well, they would have been taken out anyways or something like that, you know, is, um, you know, it's like, wait a minute, you know, it's like, uh, this is, this is a stress on the system. Sure. But, you know, the question is, uh, why are these people dying at a higher rate? And, And that's what we have to try and take care of. And we're not. We're definitely not doing that. And uh, so anyway, I I mean, I don't know if that answers the question as much as say, well, you know, these these are excess deaths that would not have occurred otherwise. And that's how you think about this quote-unquote causal relationship. So, given,
0: Right. In in, in other words, that person might have had that comorbidity, but they may have lived another 12 years with it. <clears throat> you know, yeah. w- right? right? And or, so, but that doesn't it, 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 count somehow, or yeah. And no one is looking yeah, at right. that it, because there's no way to assess exactly. And really, well, maybe it's not a priority to prove that, you know, those 12 right. years of life, you know, matter right. or whatever, um, or, you know, right. or a definitive difference in terms of, you know, their connecting right. with COVID virus. Um, you know, right. so, yeah. I so, wanted, no, I, wanted, I, I, wanted I get guess that. This.
1: There's a way to think about that in public health. We call it years of healthy years of life lost or years of life lost because a lot of these people are already, they are sick, but they're living uh, relatively comfortably. Some aren't. I mean, nursing homes are never fun often, you know, but a lot of, uh, uh, but some are, you know, people are living relatively stably, And it's not just, it's it's the idea of years of life lost given a certain, you know, exposure to illness. And mm-hmm. there's a uh, huge, and that's that calculation is going to be developed. Right now, we're waiting for a lot of that data, but that's how we'll start mm-hmm. to look at this. We'll start to look at years of life lost and such. And then the, the quick and dirty way is I'm talking about excess deaths right now, and they're massive. Mm-hmm. We're we're talking. Uh, all, there wasn't a coronavirus to. Uh, two, three months ago in the U.S., now all of a sudden there's like uh, almost 100,000 people dead. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, that's -hmm. that's a new, those are new deaths. Now, there there could be the argument, and it's hard to say, that, um, you know, at this point, uh, there's an interaction between these comorbidities and the coronavirus that's that's true obviously because those you know, these people are going to get sick but at the same time you know um, are you know what's happening to other kinds of illnesses that people could die of and such and those are occurring still anyways right so mm-hmm. you're still going to have people with heart disease you're still going to have people with lung diseases and other things mm-hmm. like that that are also dying, it turns out, just to give you a statistic in that regard, um, There, it might have changed. New York City, before the corona hit, was there was about estimated about 25 people a day dying at home. That's just mm-hmm. the normal day-to-day in New York City. They estimated mm-hmm. during the COVID that there's about 200 people dying at home. A day, so and they they don't know if it's COVID per se that's doing that, or it's people that have delayed care, so or heart disease and stroke. And another piece of that puzzle, and this is how we put things together. We try and triangulate. It turns out that in emergency departments they were seeing a huge reduction, like 30-something percent, in people coming in for heart attacks and stroke. And Mm -hmm. that sounds – what does that mean? Well, it means – it doesn't mean, wow, people are having less strokes and heart attacks. It means people (laughs) are delaying care for these really serious things. They might have, like, some chest pain, and it might be a relatively – um, you know, kind of, it wasn't a seriously bad heart attack, if that's a thing, or it, or it's mm-hmm. the beginning of a stroke and you're feeling dizzy or there's some numbness or paralysis, and you, you go in because that's what you're, emergency departments are designed for these kinds of situations, but those people say, mm-hmm. no, I'm okay, I'm not going in, <laughs> and so it gets much more serious, and they end up either being taken by ambulance because they're really in bad shape, or they end up dying at home and that's That's an issue, and it differentially obviously is going to be uh especially the case in you know populations that are poor, have less access to health care to begin with, are undocumented, you know, all the people of color, all that kind of stuff, so that's another issue. So, yeah. So
0: with different people holding different and in some cases contrarian responses to what public recommendations are, um yes. do you think part of that stems from the fact that, you know, if you're in a um less dense area, you're not uh as at as great risk, or you're maybe not in touch with the communities that are experiencing more problems, or you may not personally know as many people, right. because, you know, in New York, I mean, everybody knows a ton of people that have been affected, right? right? And and everyone right. has been living with that sense of risk. And so that will be very different, um, you know, than somebody who's in, you know, Malibu or you know uh rural
1: Wyoming right. or, or something else. But right. well yes. I mean you're you raising another good point. Uh here is the problem. Uh we don't have a vaccine. Why why is that important? Well we don't have a way to stop this other than social distancing. So mm-hmm. If, it's going to end up spreading slowly into these other areas. But right now, in general, these rural or less dense areas have very low risk unless there's some kind of weird situation. Like there was a suburban outbreak in a family in, um, I think they went on cruises or stuff. I don't remember. In New Jersey and like almost the entire family was infected, and like four family members died. And it was in a suburban area. Now, New Jersey generally has pretty high rates, but I'm talking about this this kind of specificity. So you could take that kind of super spreader, we call it little point of information, and imagine that in some kind of more rural setting where there's some kind of meeting or something like that, or some kind of gathering, whether it's religious or cultural or whatever, right? And mm-hmm. you can imagine, so it slowly spread that way, but in general, the highly dense areas are going to be the first to get infected, and that's true in almost all epidemics, pandemics, plagues, and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. That being said, you can imagine people going from one of those places, those highly infectious Situations to a more a much less infectious situation, but causing an outbreak, and that's one of the issues mm-hmm. that has to be dealt with as well. And for example, there's a Shasta County in California, very low rate. I think Redding is there. I think Redding's the main city, or it could be Chico. Anyway, they um they uh, had a very low rate and they were about to open up the county a week or two ago and you okay. know just because there's very little spread to open it up slowly but then they went and had a the Cottonwood Rodeo they called it and mm. 2000 people showed up you know mm-hmm. in the stands and everything no social distancing and the county health people said, no, we can't open up now because we don't know what's going to happen. And we still don't know if there was infectivity there because it's still within the framework of, you know, there's about a two-week incubation period, more or less, and we're still within that. So we don't know what's going on there. So, they you know, that's part of the problem is, you know, you, you get in these relatively – less dense areas you can have dense meetings and things like that or dense gatherings mm-hmm. i'm sorry so mm-hmm. that that's that's part of it too right um uh yeah anyway
0: yeah yeah um but 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 in terms of public perception the people who are in you know a a, a sparsely populated region will perceptually feel <clears throat> what difference does it make if I go out and about, um, whereas mm-hmm. people, you know, who are in a denser locale may have very different <clears throat> reactions to that. And so, mm-hmm. um, and yet, I- I'm just playing devil's advocate here, and yet the mm-hmm. recommendations are uniform. And so what you're pointing out <clears throat> is you're only as safe as your last uh, massive event. <laughs> or something like that, and then it it would be kind of foolish to, um, uh, you know, make decisions based on that because the minute, you know, somebody, some group comes in, that kind of event is held, then you're suddenly, you know, you could be in a different category.
1: Right. That's exactly right. Now, the problem is that you should open up if you can. That's important. It should open up, you know, in a careful way. When I say, I don't, just not like an immediate throw the switch, we're back to quote-unquote normal. And so you, you you want to start doing that, but you have to be careful. And you can't just, It's it, so there, there is a mechanism for infection, right? You can be, we know that it's aerosolized, that if you get breathed on or if you're in those kinds of environment or touched. And you touch your eyes or your mouth, your lips, whatever, uh, you can get inf- it 's it's a pretty infectious disease relatively, and so it doesn 't matter if it, you increase those chances in highly dense situations, whatever that is right and it, it could be that gathering at the rodeo. it could just be living in a dense setting like New York and not being too careful and the problem with bringing, going back to New York is. There's lots of dense places that have controlled this output, the out, outbreak, much better, much, much better. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong. <clears throat> Hong Kong, you know, has very few cases relatively. Korea, again, relatively, and Seoul is quite a dense urban area. They, can, You know, most Koreans live there, South Koreans live there. And um, Taiwan did a great job, and they're a highly dense society. If, if People don't know about that, but most of the people in in Taiwan live in four cities and there's about 25 million people that live there They live on the west coast and it's really dense frankly and they've controlled their their outbreak quite well. So New York City didn't and maybe there's it would have happened to some extent but frankly um, you know there's quite a bit of information that they delayed uh, shelter yeah. in place. And I think there's a new statistic, not st- again, a data point. I think researchers at either Johns Hopkins or Yale or somewhere, uh, maybe Harvard, I'm not, I don't remember, schools of public health came up with a calculation that just there, there would have been like far fewer deaths just closing up a week earlier in New York, for example and uh let's and, talk uh, about closing
0: uh, yeah. down you know like
1: uh-huh.
0: like it, what is the i mean r- rather for opening up like what is the benchmark for opening it up and are we opening it up uh based on economic incentives uh, based on pressure points are we opening up at the op- optimal time and what is the optimal time or the benchmark that we that signals that it's safe to open up. Right. And then what yeah. happens if you need to shut down? Right. Again. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so uh, from a public health pers-
1: this these are good questions obviously. It's important to they have to what the the, the way the, re- the ways you start uh, there's lots of ways to think about opening up. Uh you start to see a really a decline in infectious rate that are not they call it the reproduction the reproduction rate reproductive rate and uh if that starts to really drop and there's a the production of very few cases and mm-hmm. you in some places they're saying you know we're going to open up when we have you know, they come up with some benchmark some some sometimes you could say no more cases are being produced mm-hmm. you know for two weeks or something, that's a pretty hard one. That's kind of, that's, you know, again, that's around the incubation period. Uh, we don't know, we don't exactly know what it is, but it's about two weeks. So if 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 you have no, you don't have any super spreader kinds of uh, occasions like the rodeo, and you have like about a two week time period, more or less, some people say 11 mm-hmm. days, or 14 days, or something like that, or 10 days, and mm-hmm. there's uh, then you can start to slowly open up. Um, it's uh, it 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 really requires though, and this is the problem, and this is the the you know the 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 800 pound gorilla in the room is we don't do enough testing to know about that. Mm-hmm. We, we we you know we could not be reporting a lot of cases because we're not we're not actually doing enough testing mm-hmm. so that's one of the problems as well right and mm-hmm. so there's a lag a lag in between you know what might be happening and then the actual occurrence so you can imagine a place that isn't in and, and so what do you so if you're not testing you're not getting cases but the one place where this stuff collects is in hospitals and in deaths and in serious illness. So even if you're not testing, mm-hmm. people are going to get sick and die. Well, let's say another way to think of this is: isn't in a county in California, you're just getting you're getting no hospital cases, or serious or deaths, and mm-hmm. or you're getting very low. And you can say, well, then we then you can if you come up with a idea of how many you might think is infected in the society in the in the, in the area, you can work backwards from that, and then you say, well, there's very few cases being produced, and there's very few deaths, and we can slowly start to open up. But um, that being said, that's a general idea, but maybe you have an area, and I'm just making this up, where even though there's very low deaths and very low cases so far, you have a lot of nursing homes. Again, I'm just making this up. They haven't been infected yet. No one's really dying of this there. So even though there's an area, you know, that the general area can open up slowly, you need to pay attention to the fact that there are, um, you know, different populations that are much higher risk, you know, mm. in nursing homes and stuff. So mm-hmm. that means when you slowly open it up, you're specific to what you need. You can't just mm-hmm. say, we're well, fine, we're opening up, and everyone gets the mix in society and things like that. They're coming up with some elaborate schemes. There was these Israeli researchers, or I don't think they were medical researchers. They were kind of uh, some kind of uh, engineering or economic kind of engineering kind of people that came up with some plans to figure out if you had good testing, you know, uh, ways to get people back to work and these alternate days or weeks and such. So you have ten days off and four days on of working and it, it could help mm-hmm. defeat the environment. I'm sorry, the the epidemic, the virus, because of its incubation mm-hmm. time. But again, we don't have enough testing to know if that's uh if we can even do that. And we and, and so that's where we're at. I mean if we have enough testing. So we have to be
0: more cautious that, due to the lack of Testing is is what you're saying, right? Uh, you know, um, I know that this is a little out of your area, um, but you know, there's been some controversy about mask wearing, with people saying yeah. that you lower your own immunity, or it really doesn't, you know, the hope the space. In the mask is really not sufficient for blocking virus. Um, you know, so if you don't know the answer to this one is not your area, please feel free to say. But if you could comment on it in any way, I think it would be helpful because there's been a kind of controversy around this.
1: Yeah. So first thing I should have said at the beginning, <laughs> there's a lot I don't know. There's a lot we don't know, and and everything things are changing every day. The the issue of masks. Is interesting. Australia has. Um, it, the, the, we can say that if it has any efficacy in regard to the pathophysiology, the infectiousness, the the cycle, you know, how do you, how how it might be infectious. It you know it might it has. A, if you are sick, it will keep. It will limit your. You know, aerosolization into the environment. You know, it'll work this way. But the problem is, this is a novel virus, and that means it's new in all sorts of ways, and we don't know what it does. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. that's a really big issue. And there's there's a lot there's a lot of things uh, along that line. When you say we don't know, it's oh, I don't know a lot, anyways. But we don't know as as you know, humans a lot about this particular coronavirus, uh, people that can be infected. And that's, uh, I'm, I'm I using so really so then sloppy then language. So the fact that
0: there are infected animals is good because right. they it's are actually then contributing to herd immunity because they were already affected. Is that right? I'm confused yeah, by that. Yeah, no, no we're not, we're not,
1: we're, the problem is we can't deal, we can't, the disease could go back and forth between humans and animals. And apparently that's what's going on. So, so that means we can't control it the same way we could smallpox, because if all we had to do there was uh, vaccinate and eradicate it in humans, and then it's gone. Right. But it, it, if right. we just do that in humans, there's still all these animals that are infected and they can reinfect us. Uh, there's, uh, well, for who example, can reinfect
0: us? Because, it, like, can cats and, and lions re- reinfect us, or is it only coming from bats?
1: Well, bats see, were see here's there's an intermediate the, the 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 main the dominant origin theory for this is that there was the bats, you know, there's a lot of infect, of viruses in bats and but there was an intermediate mm-hmm. animal like in a wet market and it could oh. be uh, you know in in Wuhan for example or wherever and uh, that's the bats infected that animal, and that kind of that animal infected humans. And there was a change. I got it. In, in the mm-hmm. so that's that's where it, that's where it comes from. With um, they think with corona bats have been a source of all sorts of different viruses. Also, um, and that happened in the Middle East with MERS. That was a coronavirus as well. Uh, there was mm-hmm. some kind of wet market, some kind of situation, camels or something. I don't know the absolute genesis, but, yeah, that was... Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, I get that. So so let me ask another question. In terms of yeah. um, then the idea that, uh, like for the measles in the old days, they used to have measles parties mm-hmm. and all the kids in the neighborhood would get the measles at the same time and then you'd have some form of... Uh, local herd immunity, um, and so, right. you know, that's also been suggested, like, why don't people, why don't we just do that? But according to this scenario, where there are animal <laughs> yeah. interfaces, then that wouldn't right. work any longer, right. or, you know, what's but, the uh, theory there? Well,
1: well, well, you know, again, there's a couple of different issues here. Um hmm and that's natural herd immunity sensibility, and it just it means that most people are getting be infected and mm-hmm. that's the idea that you're getting so here's the problem if you let naturally seventy percent i'm just making this up of the population get actual mm-hmm. uh covid nineteen yeah. well there's gonna be a Case fatality rate associated with that so let's mm-hmm. let's just say i'll do I'll run the numbers for you if seventy percent of sure. the u s population of i'm rounding down three hundred million uh get covid that's two hundred and ten million people right um and then mm-hmm. that means that if there's a case fatality rate i'm we think it's between point zero zero half a percent and one percent of all people who get covid die. Uh, if mm-hmm. we think that's true, so what's one percent of 210 million? It doesn't sound like much, does it? It's 2.1 million people who will die.
0: Mm. Okay, that sounds like a lot. Okay,
1: that's when. So that's you, when you heard so those the, that that all the about other people. Or the,
0: the notion that all the other people are just having a mild case of nothing, uh, but but mm-hmm. some old people are with immune system challenges die as a result Mm -hmm. um, is no biggie. But if it's too, I mean, (laughs) it sounds like it's more than just old people at that number. Um, And, you know, that's quite a uh, lot of people.
1: Yeah, if we think that's the right case fatality rate, it's between 1.1 and 2.1 million people. And this is a number actually that was cobbled together that was given to the Trump administration and they calculate it again. This is all back of the napkin stuff because you really don't know enough about it. When especially when this was talked about like over a month ago, uh, it just mm-hmm. came out that they were estimating if this goes untreated, if we just let this happen, you'll get up to 2.2 mm-hmm. 2 million people. And this is that, mm-hmm. that's the point. It, you can't let that happen. That's 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 a huge pressure on society, obviously, for all sorts of reasons. And that will that that's that's a society. I don't know if we're already destroying society or not, but that's a society destroying level of of a death. And 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 remember too, on top of that, 210 million people, 80 percent. Again, this is our numbers now; that could change. 80 percent seem to have mild to no condition, no symptoms, and then 20 percent mm-hmm. are hospitalized. Okay. And mm-hmm. of that percentage, I think five percent I think five percent are serious have serious ICU level type hospitalization, and that'll break our health system. Twenty percent mm-hmm. of two hundred ten million people is forty million people. Okay. We have mm-hmm. in the US about a million hospital beds. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I uh in about so, and that's all. I'm just giving you round numbers, but they're they're mm-hmm. you know they're they're all this they're all more or less within the magnitude. It's not like I'm 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 ten times off or something. And these are the kind of numbers people you know epidemiologists, public health people quote unquote play with in terms of these kinds of issues. So if we let, we don't know what would happen if we let the thing the the disease out and we had parties and such, but Mm-hmm. Do we want to take that chance? Because we just don't know. And and not only that, we don't know how much immunity is conferred. We don't even know if you're sick, how long you, you know, if you if you get it out of your system, so to speak, and you develop antibodies, whether those antibodies will even protect you and how, how much they will protect you and for how long they'll mm-hmm. protect you.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, mean, no, I, we I don't get know the picture. Now, you're, you're saying that there's 80% who get a mild case. Um, or asymptomatic no and then there's 20% yeah. that wind up in the hospital. But most of the people that I'm aware of, you know, in New York who have gotten this, have had something that doesn't fall into e- either category, honestly. Uh, they've had a really rough ride, but they haven't gone to the hospital. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. What is that called? Yeah. I mean, it's not like the flu. I mean, the... Uh, it's not like what people complain about with the flu. It's something, you know, yeah. something else and something... Yeah worse and more prolonged I mean what what yeah, is the percentage of people a having gr- that mm-hmm. and
1: that's the gray or, area like, what do you have to say 20- about that that group well, yeah that's the gray area of around 20-ish percent maybe there's a bunch of people mm-hmm. that are quote-unquote mild so let's another way that epidemiologists and others will think about this is say well we're going to go to the harder numbers that's ambiguous which you raised which is quite right Let's go to mm-hmm. the harder numbers. We'll just talk about serious hos. we'll just talk about hospitalizations. And we mm-hmm. use those numbers. We can track that. And then we can look at serious hospitalizations. And and you say, Oh, mm-hmm. okay, those are real numbers. And let's we don't right, know but about but If they're what not they're hospitalized,
0: about. then they don't count. And they're presumed to have had a mild case. And I I've seen people yeah. struggle with this for weeks and not go to the hospital. Yeah, yeah. So we don't really have right. a, think- a, a category for that. Mhm.
1: Yeah, and that actually will have a drain, too. And we don't – you're right. We don't have a great way of – because people aren't counted in the system or counted in any system other than they're not going to work. Like, I think, Mm you know, Cuomo's uh, brother uh, was talking – he got sick, and he he really had a hard time of it, but he didn't get hospitalized. Right. I think there
0: are – I know of quite a few people that have had that. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: And I I actually Mm -hmm. don't know anyone that's uh, sick, weirdly. Mm -hmm. I mean, that I can confirm to be the case. But, you know.
0: That's part of the problem, too. It can't be confirmed when you don't have tests. (laughs)
1: That's right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. you know, if you have it in your system and nothing's Mm -hmm. happening, well, yeah, it's really hard to tell what that population is. But we, you know, we really need to do a larger, we have to have that information so we can find out what's going on. And so this is why we have to do the crudest thing, which is this issue of shelter in place. It's by far the crudest thing you can do, because it's the only mm-hmm. tool right now.
0: And mm-hmm.
1: it, it sucks. Yep. But it, we, we don't have a lot of other information. And we're trying to get it, but we're woefully behind in testing. And we all know mm-hmm. the story of that. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's where we're left. If we don't have the testing, we end up sheltering in place. Um, okay, but right. that's we can't really do the that forever.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And how long, we can't yep. do that forever. So we're going to have to, right. we'll probably have wave after wave of, sheltering in place until we get a vaccine or some kind of control and testing, wave after wave of, you know, people, we get a soft reopening and the infection comes back. Mm-hmm. And then we get you, know, get, you know, then we, we control it again. Then get a soft reopening infection comes back. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's probably what we'll And I don't know what the answer is. again. This is way outside my experience space. Mhm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we have to balance our society shaking apart versus, you know, killing a whole bunch of people. And yep, that's it.
0: Actually, you know, I think we're going to we're coming to the end of our show here actually, uh, our showtime. Okay um but uh it's uh, it's really been terrific uh talking with you Rob Lipton and getting you know yeah. some of your expertise and 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 view of all of this um right. you know which I think it's really helpful because you know we see these chart charts and figures um but you really right. you know have taken us into the mind of you know how this is quantified right. and you know how it's uh you know how it, how it gets altered how the science tr- changes in response right. to the vicissitudes of the, of the information in the situation. Um, you know, right. so I think it's really helpful and uh thank you so much, you know, for being oh, yeah, uh with you. us here today. Check the dots. Yeah. Thank
1: you so it's much, Nelson. And by the way, everything I said could change tomorrow <laughs> just because we don't know. <laughs> we, we, everything's changing so quickly, but no, not not completely, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me.
0: Yeah, no, it's been wonderful. Uh, and uh, thank you, listeners, for being with us on today's edition of Connect the Dots. We'll be back next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm Allison Rose Levy. Stay safe and healthy in the coming weeks. Well, well, well.